Good morning, North Shore. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Brian Fent. Um, I'm blessed to be a member here of this church and to have been so lovingly and generously and faithfully served by not only the elders and the deacons and the worship team, but the members as well. Um, so joyfully and gladly, I bring to you this word which has brought new life to me and I hope brings new life to you as you've been blessed to hear Sunday after Sunday from your pastor uh, and your elders. So if you would, as I give you a preface, open your copy of Scripture to Genesis chapter 5. And um, those who know what this chapter is might already uh, dread. Those who don't, it is a chapter of a genealogy, which could be perhaps the least enjoyable um, sections of Scripture to read altogether. But my hope today is to change your opinion on at least this genealogy in particular. What may seem <clears throat> at first, or this sermon may, may present itself as me metaphorically dumping a pile of puzzle pieces in front of you, and you have no idea what this picture is, what's it going to look like, um, please just bear with me, follow along. We're going to put it together, hopefully coherently and clearly, that you might behold this beautiful image and behold the wondrous mystery, as we just sang, of Christ found within this section. Now, before I read Genesis 5, let me just tell you what my favorite commentator has to say here um, about five of the patriarchs here. He says, his name is Matthew Henry, he says, quote, We have here all that the Holy Ghost thought fit to leave upon record concerning five of the patriarchs before the flood, and there is nothing observable concerning any of these particularly. So, on that note, let's read Genesis 5 and see if it's true. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh had lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. 
When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work, from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and testified of all that Scripture prophesied in advance, and your life stands as a testimony of the glory of God and the power of his word, which communicates the way of salvation, and that is through your Son. I pray that we would come to know this more certainly in our minds and in our hearts today as your word is preached. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, now to dump the puzzle pieces in front of you. So starting at the beginning, you have Adam. Adam's the first man listed in this genealogy. Adam is the first man. Um, notice what it says of Adam. Uh, God created him in the likeness of God, in God's image. We hear very often, Adam was made in God's image. Now, what, um, what follows is interesting as it talks about Seth and who Seth is. And, and what it says, there's this differentiation um, between Adam, who's made in the likeness of God, and Seth, it says, is made after the image and likeness of Adam. So it's a very interesting thing to, uh, to note. And I was um, generously and lovingly spoken to by Mike Chang afterwards, and he wanted me to, to make clear, um, after the first service that is, to make clear that um, though we, as sons and daughters of Adam, as Seth, were, or Seth is and was, we are created in the image of Adam, who is a sinner fallen from grace. We still have a should I say, tainted or, or marred image of God within us. There is still the image of God that is um, ours by the mere fact that we are offspring of Adam. Um, but Seth, very interestingly, was created in the image and likeness of his father Adam, a sinner, of which you and I also can be traced back through the first man and count ourselves, rightfully so, sinners who have fallen from grace and are in need of a Savior. But notice, um, interestingly, what it says of Christ, who Paul refers to as the second Adam. In, in the book of Colossians, or Colossians, as you say here, in the first chapter, in verse 15, it says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. So here we have Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who is the exact image of God. In contrast to Adam, who is made in the image of God, Christ is the image of God perfectly God, and he bears that resemblance. 
in his conduct, in his demeanor, in his actions before us. Now, though we are sinners of the lineage of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam, there is this hope that we find in Christ, and Paul makes mention of it in the book of Corinthians, the second book, the fifth chapter, in the 17th verse, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is very important, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So those who were formerly created in the image of Adam and, and were representatives and, and the inheritors of a sad and fateful reality of sin and the promise of inevitable death, those who are in Christ are promised the inverse of that, life eternal, a new creation. And what was old is passed away, it's abandoned and left behind forever. Now, I will somewhat expeditiously move through all of these men, but my intention is to give you a little bit of information about each man, specifically their name, what it means, and in that you will come to see where Christ can be found. So moving on, Seth. Seth is a name which means appointed or substitute. Now, and you can figure this out and come to learn this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, where it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And you see uh, in your Bible, perhaps, there's a little um, footnote, a little indicator. And that word appointed, if you read your footnote, it communicates to you that Seth sounds like the Hebrew for he appointed. So Seth means appointed. Um, interesting to know of Seth, as I already mentioned, he was born in the image and likeness of his parents, um, as are we, the sons and daughters of Adam. What is very noteworthy of this genealogy is that of all those that were created and the offspring of Adam who honored the Lord and, as he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, it is only a select few, the offspring of Seth, that are listed, and those are the ones that would survive, specifically Noah and his sons, the great flood and the judgment. So it is very interesting that both um, the offspring that would endure the judgment, being Noah and his sons, came from this line of Seth. And you can trace back through the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 24, this very line goes all the way. Actually, Luke goes the other way. He starts from Joseph and works his way back to Adam. But it is from this line that we have our hope and our Savior to escape judgment. Um, Moving along, Enosh, this will be quick. According to Jones's Dictionary of Old Testament proper names, this name means a man frail and miserable, or a man who is mortal, which is in contrast to God who is immortal. Kenan, continuing, this name could mean nest or dwelling, or sorrow, or to chant a dirge, and a dirge is a sad song or lament. Stay with me, the pieces are being assembled. Mahalalel. This name means praise of God, blessed God, or the shining one of El. I'll read you a quote from Jeff A. Benner. He says here of this name, In Hebrew, this name is a combination of two words, Mahalal and El. The root, Mahalal, is Halal, and that means to shine. This could be the shining of a light, like above your head. This could be... 
the shining of a flame, of a candle, or the moon, but figuratively, the shining of a person's character, okay? A character such as his fame or his pride. And from this root, halal, comes the word mahalal, meaning shining or one who shines. And el, very, um, perhaps those who are familiar with the Old Testament are familiar and aware of the fact that el is indicative of the name of God. It actually means mighty one, but it is transliterated often as el. And you can observe this in certain names like Daniel, which is God is my judge, or el is my judge. Emmanuel, God with us. Samuel, Samuel is a combination of Shem in Hebrew, which means name, and El, which is the name for God, a representative of God, Samuel. It's all over Scripture. It's representative and indicative of God, the Mighty One. Moving on, Jared. Jared comes from the verb Yerard, Hebrew verb Yerard, meaning to descend or to go down. That's all there is to know about Jared. Enoch. This name means trained or initiated or inaugurated, and initiated could communicate teaching about or instructing in. Stay with me, stay with me. Um, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5. Hear what it says. It's, uh, Enoch is an interesting character in Scripture, and the New Testament gives revelation into the nature of his character and why it speaks of him as one who God took away or took up. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 6 in Hebrews chapter 11 is a verse that I at least have heard very often quoted, but only recently, only as I'm studying and preparing, did I gather that this verse is hitched to Enoch. It is, it is from or because of what Enoch has done that this verse is even declared. Notice what it says of Enoch. Um, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch was a man who walked with God, who was a man of faith, who trusted God. And it was by that faith that Enoch was transferred from this life to the next. He avoided death, which is representative, indicative of Christ, what he promises for us. Those who, by faith, trust in Christ are taken from this world, spared death, everlasting judgment and punishment, and given life in the presence of God forever. But notice, it speaks of faith and how it's hitched to Enoch. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. That is God. Anyone that would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Turn to uh, the book of Jude. Fastest way to find that, turn to the book of Revelation and back one page, and you'll find Jude. In the 14th verse and the 15th verse, we'll read it together and see what Jude says about Enoch. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed 
in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is, the Lord God. This is what it says of Enoch. Jude communicates and conveys to us that during Enoch's life, now go back to Genesis 5 when Enoch was born and what he was doing on earth, on earth at that point, Enoch was prophesying. He was warning people of the coming judgment for ungodliness. He says it, uh, repeats it very often. All of their ungodly deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way, they are living in contrary, in, in contradiction to God. They are living um, against him, rebellious. And Enoch is saying, there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming for this. But the Lord has made a way, you know, if you're familiar with the story of Noah, that that ark was the way of salvation. That was the, the door of the ark, was the, the door you entered in by faith and were spared that judgment. Enoch prophesies of that. Moving on to Methuselah. Methuselah is a name which means his death shall bring or when he is, uh, when he is dead, it shall be sent. Methuselah is a name that means his death shall bring. Remember that. Of Methuselah, it says that he lived 969 years, which is the longest lifespan that the Bible records, which I don't think is a coincidence. I believe it's indicative of God's mercy and grace that Methuselah, who actually the year he died was the year the flood came, which in a very prophetic way, his name indicates the coming judgment, that God would allow this man to live 969 years, the longest lifespan in the Bible communicating God's mercy, his patience, his forbearance with sinners, that those who would repent had ample time to repent, and that the way of salvation was made and being prophesied about for the longest period in history that someone was alive. Now you can figure out uh, arithmetically that the year Methuselah died was in fact the same uh, year that the flood came. When you take the age of Methuselah when he had his son Lamech, which was 187 years, you take the age of Lamech when he had his son Noah, which was 182 years, and you take the age of Noah when the flood came, which was 600, you add those together, you get 969 years, which communicates that, in fact, Methuselah's death, in a way, has brought the judgment. When he is dead, the judgment will be sent, and, in fact, it did. Next name. Lamech. According to Jeff A. Benner, this is one of the names in the Bible that is very difficult to translate as the root of this word is not used anywhere in the biblical text. But he suggests that one possible interpretation could be that this name means to be low or to descend or to bring low or despair. And then finally, Noah, as Lamech prophesies about him, you'll see a footnote in Genesis 5.29 that it speaks of Noah being a name which sounds like the Hebrew word for relief or comfort or rest. I'm going to start putting these puzzle pieces together. My intention was for you to not really know what's going on, and if you don't know what's going on, I've accomplished my goal. Um, but before I start to put the pieces together and some of you wake up, here's one final thing that's noteworthy about this um, section of Scripture that's not really relevant to the puzzle that we're going to assemble, but is of value for you. Um, Matthew Henry notes about or calls attention to the way in which God, um, through Adam, has preserved for all of the subsequent generations a knowledge of the creation, a knowledge of the fall, and a knowledge of 
the promise that God will redeem and rescue man. And he does so in a most remarkable way because Adam lived, was alive for 930 years, which means that all the men up until Noah were alive at the same time of Adam. So if there was ever a variance or divergence from the truth about the creation, the fall, and God's promised redemption, there was a direct source to Adam that he might bring clarity and uh, clear up what may be misunderstood. Um, It's a very wonderful gift of God, and you and I, in like manner, have that same um, resource available to us in his holy, inspired word. So make use of it. Do not neglect it. But now to put this puzzle piece together, or this puzzle together with the pieces. Um, Remember the beginning, Matthew Henry said, in a sense, there's really nothing there. Someone said very often, in fact, two years straight when preaching through the book of Hebrews, that the point of the Bible is Jesus. So in light of that, you know that person to be Pastor Ed. If you don't, now you do. Pastor Ed said, for two years straight in the book of Hebrews, the point of the Bible is Jesus. I believe that to be true. And because I believe that to be true, it must be that Jesus is found within this genealogy. So, before we get there, let's just understand some things about these names in this genealogy. Each one of these names in English, they are transliterated. That means that the original Hebrew letters, because this, this was originally written in Hebrew, the original Hebrew letters are represented using the characters of the English alphabet. They are not translated, they are transliterated. I'll give you the definition of transliterated again. The original Hebrew letters are represented using characters of the English alphabet. Not translated. This word transliterated comes from the Latin trans meaning to cross over, litera meaning letter. So we're crossing from the Hebrew alphabet to the English alphabet. But I gave you the definition or the translation of these men's names. So allow me to just recap all these men's names in order as they're transliterated. We'll post it on the screen. You have Adam, Seth, this is in order, the ten men, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And now, I don't expect you to remember the translations I gave you, so we're going to post them for you here. I'll step aside. Man, Adam is man, Seth, appointed, Enosh, mortal, Kenan, sorrow, Mahalalel, the praise of God, Yared, descend, Enoch, teaching or instructing, Methuselah, his death shall bring, Lamech, those brought low, Noah, comfort or rest. Let me read the translated names in order. Man, appointed mortal sorrow, the praise of God, the shining one of El, Mahalalel, shall descend, teaching and instructing that his death shall bring those brought low, comfort or rest. It seems to me, it seems to me like these names are conveying the gospel. It truly seems that that's the case to me. And I spent a good amount of time inquiring about it. I've tested and put together what I think to be an extensive list of resources and references that I will be giving to the church office, and they will have, and you are welcome to email them and ask them, because I want you to not take my word for it. I want you to be a good Berean, as it says in Acts 17, and see for yourself. I want you to do what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is test everything and hold fast what is good. Test what I am declaring to you today. Don't take my word for it. But whether or not this is genuine 
translation of these men's names, which I believe that it is. This statement, as far as the New Testament communicates, I believe is a true statement. I believe anyone that knows the gospel would agree that because of our sin, there is great sorrow and despair. There's a promise of death and eternal judgment. But Jesus, who is the praise of God, the shining one of God, has descended and he came teaching something and he taught his disciples and communicated that he was going to die and that his death was going to bring restoration and comfort and relief to those who were mired in sin. I believe that to be a true statement. And so based on that statement, I'm going to preach this sermon. Recall in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40 and verse 46, what Jesus says to the hard-hearted religious leaders. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. So just like the Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking back in 1st century A.D., we are confronted by these words of Jesus. Did Moses write about him? Did Moses write about Jesus? I believe he did. I believe it's clear here. And if you don't want to use Genesis 5 as um, the proof text, you can go to Genesis 3. You can go countless other places in the Torah to see where Moses spoke of Jesus. But what did Moses write of him? He wrote, in this case, that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. So now we have two questions that I want to answer. Then we'll have three points of application and the sermon will be wrapped up. These two questions are, number one, what is this mortal sorrow and despair spoken of? What is this mortal sorrow and despair spoken of? And secondly, except for your sworn enemy dying, how could anyone's death bring comfort to a person that's in despair? Most people today do not associate death with pleasure, relief, comfort. It's in fact the opposite. Death usually results in grief and discomfort and sorrow and sadness. But here we're going to answer these questions. Remember in, uh, as we were reading genealogy, I tried to emphasize it, uh, reading the genealogy of, of Adam in Genesis 5, that this statement was repeated uh, again and again, and he died, and he died. Speaking of Adam, and he died, and Seth, and he died again and again, which is a very sobering reminder for everyone of your fateful end. In fact, Adam was warned by God, if you eat of this tree in the garden, the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they died. Each one of them died. And you and I will die. You and I will die. You must be aware of this reality. Thousands of years later, you and I stand under the same condemnation of death. But why was Adam told that he would die? Because he transgressed God's word. He sinned against God. Sin has brought death into this world. And we are all condemned under sin in the same way that Adam was. Yet, we see in Genesis 5 that God had a plan. God had a plan all along. Most incredibly. And I believe this genealogy points us to it. So you know from Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Yet Jesus came in the power of God to taste death for everyone. 
Hebrews 2.9. Jesus died as a ransom to set us free from the sins that we committed under the first covenant, the law. Jesus died. And Jesus has come to do away with sin once and for all. How? By the sacrifice of himself, by his death. So in Adam, who has died, Seth, Enosh, everyone thereafter, everyone that came before us has died. Their death brings sorrow. Yet in Jesus, his death has a totally different purpose. The outcome is incredible. And so think about the reality of your death and the sorrow that will come if you die in your sins. And contrast that to the joy of knowing the man that came and died so that you would not have to taste death, that you would not have to pay the condemnation and penalty for your sins, and that he would once and for all do away with sin by his death. That man is Jesus Christ. That is the man to whom you should look. Earlier this year, I was at a funeral for a young man. He was 20 years old. I didn't know him personally. I knew his father relatively well. And out of um, support for the family, I, I went. And the, the, the whole funeral service was in Spanish, so it was hard for me to understand. But I was able to sit there and quietly observe everything that was going on around me. And I noticed as the parents came in and as they stood in the back of the church, the weight and the burden of this child's death. Like, I could physically see them hunched over and leaning and relying on their family members to keep them upright as they walked from the back of the church to the front. And when they sat in their chair in the, in the pew and, and wallowed in this grief and in this despair, the sadness was palpable. I could, it, you could feel it in the room. And for a moment, I was burdened by that same grief and sadness, like, it's a tragedy that this young man has passed away. It's absolutely a tragedy. It's a sadness. But as I was sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, when I leave this church, I'm not going to carry this grief with me anymore. And being honest with you, I haven't. Until I prepared for this sermon and it became a part of this message, I haven't even thought about that day. I haven't thought about this sorrow that I witnessed with my own eyes that these parents and this, these family members were carrying. Not, not another thought. And I think about the words of Isaiah in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Speaking of Jesus. And I thought, how amazing. I forfeited my life as a result of my sins. I gave it up like it, it's as good as gone. Yet Jesus willingly came and he bears the burden of for all of my mistakes and all of my misery is cast upon him. All of my sin is cast on him. And I metaphorically walk out of the church totally free, unburdened, and he's crushed by it. Yet willingly, he was crushed by it. Notice he didn't, his life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up willingly. He says, no man takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. Then you have these words, the name Methuselah, which means his death shall bring. So on at least three occasions in the gospel that I can at least remember, Jesus tells his disciples very explicitly and very clearly, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered up to the hands of sinners and they're going to kill me. 
They're going to put an end to my life. And at one point, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him back and tells him, you're not thinking of the things of God. You're thinking of the things of man. Because from the beginning, God knew that he was going to send his son to die for us. And Jesus knew that he was carrying out that mission to save us, to redeem us. In fact, he says in Mark 10, verse 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are Jesus' own words. That's why he came. Turn to Matthew 26, um, please, if you would. And in Matthew 26, you have the account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Now it says here, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We heard not too long ago, a few days ago, a whole sermon preached on this, that this bread and this cup are representative of Christ's battered, mutilated body. His blood poured out. Why? Why? To pay the price for our sins that we might be forgiven. Jesus institutes this wonderful reminder that we would never forget what he has done for us, something God had prophesied thousands of years ago. Now Jesus has come and has brought fulfillment to it, and we're invited to remember it by taking of this bread and of this wine. This is a reminder of his substitutionary atonement where we belong on the cross, yet he went there for us. We should be pierced and beaten, yet he stands there instead. And you who by faith accept this are the recipient of the pardon. He pays it all. You go free. This is remarkable. Romans 6.23, I mentioned it already. It says the wages of sin is death, but... His death, Jesus' death, shall bring the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death has brought the free gift of God, eternal life. It's remarkable. So now here's three points of application. Hopefully the puzzle piece has been assembled clearly. You can see how beautiful it is. If you can't, um, then someone else is going to have to come up here and preach in my place. But hopefully you can. Here's some points of application Starting with the first, very simply, search the scriptures, for in them you will have eternal life. They bear witness about Jesus. Search the scriptures. It sounds so simple. It sounds rudimentary. How can I know about Jesus? Read the Bible. God wrote it. If Genesis 5 is an indicative of God's authorship, then there are many other chapters and verses in the Old Testament which indicate and clearly communicate God's hand as the one who is writing down these words. So, daily search the scriptures and consider the implications, okay? Consider the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ being found in a genealogy in Genesis 5, okay? In a book 
that is written by Jews, okay, written by Moses. Ezra is responsible for um, preserving it and collecting it after the Babylonian exile. And then the Masoretes uh, later, after Jesus, are responsible for preserving it and, and providing for us what I believe your ESV Bible uses as the foundation for their translation from Old Testament to New. But these men reject Jesus, not Moses, but the present-day Jews reject Jesus. Yet, the genealogy of Genesis 5 seems to be communicating the gospel that this Messiah would come teaching his death shall bring the despairing comfort. So consider the implications of that. Consider it in your mind and recall, as was read earlier, Luke 24, what Jesus said, everything that was written about him in the book of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled, and it was. Number two, always remember how Jesus brought the despairing comfort. The way in which he brings peace is death, his death, his perfect righteous life given up on the cross, handed over to you by faith. And he takes and bears the shame and the burden for your sin once and for all. Remember how he accomplished this. And know for certain that the cross is not a defeat. It's a victory because God foretold it from the beginning of time. This is how I will bring redemption and salvation. It will be my son, Jesus Christ, who comes to die for you. The way in which you find comfort and relief from your sins, from the burden of your sins, is believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never forget it. Do not, do not turn your back on the way in which he died. Do not grow callous to it. And finally, the third point of application, which is simple in theory. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps obvious. I'm going to give you an illustration. I can't claim ownership of this. It's not mine. But I believe it to be effective in communicating the importance of this point. So imagine you're in Niagara Falls, upstate New York. You're on the New York side of the falls, and you see a tightrope strung across the water from New York to Canada. And this man is on the tightrope, and he's holding a wheelbarrow full of rocks. And he's walking this tightrope, balancing the wheel on the tightrope and his feet on the tightrope, back and forth, back and forth. For 20 times, you sit there in awe, just like jaw on the floor. How is he doing this? How is he walking back and forth across his falls, the wind blowing, the water splashing, the mist going everywhere, yet he doesn't waver, he doesn't move, he's just steady on that line, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually, by the 20th time, you run up to him and say, that's amazing. It's so amazing. How are you able to do this? I can't even, I'm like, I'm in awe of your, your ability to do this. And he goes, do you believe that I could do it again? And you say, absolutely. I just watched you do it 20 times, not even a slip. He dumps the rocks out in front of you and says, okay, get in. Get in the wheelbarrow and let's go across. If you believe I can do it again, get in and walk with me. Jesus is calling you, you who have heard the testimonies of his life, his death, and his resurrection in the New Testament, and hear the prophecies about what was going to happen in the Old Testament. 
He's telling you, you who've seen it, you who've heard it, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he is who he says he is? And if you say, well, yeah, it gets so clear in all of Scripture from the Old to the New Testament. So he tells you, I'm the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. So walk through the door. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you invite us to walk through the door, that you've made the way straight, you've made it clear, you've made it open for us by your death, that we simply by faith enter in to what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace in this way, and that we are made free by faith in your sacrifice, in your death. Your death has brought us relief and comfort, Lord. May those that do not know this to be true, may they come to be certain of it in their minds and in their hearts today and turn to you and be convinced of your lordship and their hope being found only in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.